In this episode, I'm once again joined by Tibetologist, author, and Tantric Buddhist Lama, Glenn Mullen. We learn how a mystical vision at Tibet's Oracle Lake, Lama Latso, directed Glenn to move to Mongolia for 10 years, where he would eventually receive the nation's highest honor, the Mongolian Star. We discuss Glenn's encounters and friendships with the great shamans of the steppes, Himalayan oracles, and the last princess of Mongolia. Glenn reveals the inner workings of Mongolian shamanism, including the training of apprentices, 99 spirit channeling, ritual and trance practices, and more. So without further ado, Lama Glenn Mullen. Glenn Mullen, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, thank you. Honor and pleasure to be here. We've talked about many things on the episodes uh, that you've been a guest on this podcast, but something we haven't talked much about is your time spent in Mongolia. You spent 10 years in Mongolia on the steppes and in the Gobi and became acquainted, it seems, with many of the uh, Mongolian shamans there, including the former state shaman, Vyampa Dorge. I'm curious what brought you to Mongolia in the first place? Why did you stay so long? And can you talk a bit about how you formed the relationships with those shamans there? Basically, the sequence of events was that uh, after my training in Darmsla between uh, 72 and 80, 1984, and for the next, I guess, seven, eight years, I would go back to India for about six months of the year, whenever Dalai Lama would give teachings to do retreats and motorcycling in the Himalayas. <laughs> and uh, then I moved back to North America for a while to, because of some projects I was involved with founding a, a thing called uh, Mystical Arts of Tibet to bring over Tibetan Lamas and tour cities in North America and with sacred music, sacred dance, making sound mandalas. Originally forming that in Canada, then giving it to a friend who wanted to continue that work down in Atlanta. And I, so I was sort of based in North America, but as a writer and a meditation teacher, I was still traveling five, six, seven months a year, every year. And it came to the point where I thought, oh, I would love to move back to Asia and just sort of live in that sort of gentle Asian atmosphere. And uh, kind of the, the sweetness of a traditional Buddhist society, if you will, a certain kind of emotional interaction between humanoids, <laughs> which we don't really have over here in North America. You may have something a little bit like that in the more uh, stable societies in Europe, but North America is really a sort of a, a boiling too fast soup of hodgepodge of all kinds of influence. So I really wanted to move back, but I wasn't sure where I could move back to because uh, I didn't want to move back to India, to Dharamsala, because uh, the refugee situation and uh, visa situation, all of that was not so good. When I did live there as Commonwealthers, we, got a, we were allowed to stay without any visas. We had a 99-year treaty with India. But the, person, the, the Sikhs who murdered Mrs. Gandhi were sponsored by Sikhs, Indians living in Canada. So that kind of, and Canada, India asked us to send back those, those, those guys, but of course they were all Canadian citizens and we can't pick someone up and deport them to a country uh, without 
due diligence, that presentation of evidence. All of the evidence from the Indian government basically was done gained by illegal spying in Canada on Canadians. <laughs> so they didn't want, so as a result, going back to India wasn't really a big option. And I, previously, I also, I had visa problems with India. So I didn't want to, after, uh, you know, after this event with the murder of Mrs. Gandhi, I had some visa issues. I didn't want to go back. Nepal would have been my next choice, really, because I love Nepal and love motorcycling in Nepal. And they've got of their 18 kingdoms that are united as the country of Nepal, about six of seven of those are traditionally Buddhist societies and Tibetan Buddhists. And there's lots of Tibetan lamas and Tibetan refugees. So speaking, keeping my Tibetan language up to par would have been quite easy there. But unfortunately, at that time, the Maoists in China were having a very heavy activity up in the mountains. And so uh, the place was uh, turned into a little bit of a killing fields. No Westerners were hurt in it, but it, it meant living there became a little bit more stressful. Up in the, the Maoists were mostly creating pandemonium in the remote places, but of course that pushed many, many of the villagers out of the city and flooding into Kathmandu Valley. So I decided uh, that wouldn't be so good. Of course, my first choice would be in Tibet, but with Tibet under Chinese occupation, that's not gonna happen. I might have been able to get into West China, one of the East Tibetan regions, which aren't under the Tibet Autonomous Region classification, but there they speak a kind of a, a pigeon to a Tibetan, if I could say. <laughs> Amdo was probably where I like the best, but their Tibetan is, unless one of the Tibetans there has lived and gone to school in central Tibet, it's like a different language. Kampa, not so bad. But again, it would have been very problematic with the government getting visas. So I went to the Oracle Lake in Tibet. Uh, and that's where they go to look for Dalai Lamas. And every Tibetan traditionally used to try and go there once or twice in their life for a kind of a life epiphany vision. It's a little bit like a crystal ball experience. I'm not an expert on crystal balls. <laughs> I remember when I was in my early 20s out on the West Coast, a lot of little shops sold crystal balls. And they're kind of these smoky, cloudy things. And when you look into them, it's like, you kind of drift, they're kind of hypnotic. You kind of drift off into visual kaleidoscopic experiences. <laughs> they sort of draw you in and I don't know, just tickle your imagination or something like that. Except with the Oracle Lake, you walk up to about 17,600 feet and you look down to a tiny little lake that you know looks about this size or something like that. It doesn't look big at all because it's, you know, quarter of a mile away or something like that. Uh, but, and it's surrounded by a ring of mountains. And you're at 16,000 feet looking down into it and it becomes almost like a crystal ball. <laughs> hey, we used to buy those things as paperweights over here. And if you're you know, doing your studies or whatever, you get a little bored for a while, you'll turn it on and just look into it like, mm -hmm. <laughs> Sort of a paperweight, a multitasking paperweight, you could say, <laughs> before the days of like 
internet on your telephones or before the days of handphones, <laughs> before the days of internet. <laughs> and uh, so I decided to go there and actually a British American filmmaker who lives in England made a, made a documentary about that trip to Tibet is called uh, Sacred Sites of the Dalai Lamas, something like that. And he later, Michael Weissey, he later published a book of some photographs taken by some of our team members. We didn't talk about my story of uh, looking for the <laughs> a hint for what to do, where in Asia to move back. But uh, when I went there, everyone had their own sort of personal experience, you could say. But there were 21 of us, and I think 18 of them had very, very strong, you could say, visionary experiences. From my side, after looking into the lake for about 15, 20 minutes, you kind of, and you're at, don't forget, 17,600 feet. The lake is surrounded by mountains. So these are all reflected in the lake coming and going in a kind of a misty way. Then clouds in the sky makes a further kind of layer of bewitching and betwixting <laughs> aspect to the lake gazing experience and birds flying and then a little wind will come up and make ripples and waves. So all of this makes a multi-layered kind of visual stimuli. And amazingly, one after another, it's almost like you fall asleep sitting up, but your eyes are wide open and you're looking into the lake. And you just kind of have these dream-like experiences where what you see is a little bit like a picture postcard, but with no GPS setting. <laughs> and uh, I remember, you know, when I was doing work on my book on the 14 Dalai Lamas and how they find each of the Dalai Lamas, they look in the lake and often the one looking will get those kind of picture postcard uh, experience and will describe, yes, I saw this kind of stupa and a house with this kind of roof and over above there was this kind of shaped little temple. And that'll go back to the central commission for how you like identify when you finally get down to candidates. Does anyone born in a place having those kind of buildings kind of thing? That lay of the land. So in my case, I saw a very specific kind of things. And sometimes you see mantric letters uh, in many of the literature about that lake. And for me, many of the, the strong element of my experience was um, Bodhisattva Manjushri. So I had a feeling that I was seeing five mountains uh, at one point, looking very kind of craggly or something like that if Cragley is an authentic word in the English language. If not, please, Webster and Oxford, enter it immediately. <laughs> and uh, so I kept seeing this, this thing of five mountains kept coming through. And then little things to do with Manjusri, uh, like the syllable D kept kind of floating up. And, you know, you're, you're basically, you're in a timeless, stay after half an hour of sitting at 16,000, uh, 17,600 feet, looking into this sort of very hypnotic kind of crystal ball lake, your head really just starts swimming and you enter a kind of a place that's halfway between sleep and wake, wakefulness. And it's like a dream, but uh, a lucid dream, something like that. And it's just 
a series of visuals. And so that, uh, that's what occurred to me. And I thought, well, that's maybe some sort of hint. So then I thought, oh, the five, maybe that refers to Utai Shan, the sacred five mountains in North China, which are Buddhist mountains in the very north under what used to be old Mongolia. And these days it's uh, south of the Great Wall, the White Wall. So it's actually inner Mongolia by the Manchu Mongol classification after the Manchus invaded and conquered China. But it's uh, sort of a Mongolian set of mountains in the far south of Mongolia, uh, by the old way of looking at Mongolia in our present political maps. And so I thought, oh, maybe it's there. So then I went and visited um, some months later, maybe the next spring, I think it was, next summer. I went to uh, Mongolia. I went to the Five Peak Mountain thinking, oh, maybe I'll see something. And now it might have been possible for me to get some kind of permission from the Chinese government to live there because it's a non-political place. It's far enough from the Tibetan border that none of the, you wouldn't, I wouldn't come into the administration, have to deal with the administrative offices of those people under in charge of ruling Tibet or places not presently under Tibet autonomous region, but which are historically Tibetan areas. So I thought maybe it's there. And I spent a couple of weeks there, but nothing really linked. And uh, so I thought, oh, I don't know. And then when I was there, I was invited. Uh, There's part of, I, I tied, usually with my visits like that, I would often tie them into bigger teaching tours. So I'd uh, sort of tied it into an Asian teaching tour and I had an invitation from Mongolia to go up and teach for a month in Mongolia in the, some of the, the newly established Buddhist centers after the fall of communism in Mongolia. So I went up to Mongolia and sort of one after another, the half dozen visuals that have popped up in the lake popped up. And I was thinking to myself, well, this might be a nice place. And it was really to, to make my base. And then I went around and it turned out that one of the lamas uh, who had become one of the main lamas in the country Gundu Zampo had actually lived in Darmsla and gone to the same monastic school, although not at the same time as me in Darmsla, but I'd met him in Darmsla in the, I guess it would be early 80s or mid 80s, something like that. And so then I went and visited him and he was, he is, his Tibetan had become really perfect and Whenever Dalai Lama would visit Mongolia in those days, he would serve as Dalai Lama's translator. And we really hit it off. And then the head Lama at the same time, who had the Lama who had become the sort of administrative head of all the uh, new monks in Mongolia, so-called Gyanan Hamba Lama. I also had met him briefly in Dharamsa. And so then when uh, I went to visit him, uh, I said, Yams, not sure what I want to do with basing in North America is a bit of a headache. And I, I do travel and teach six, seven months a year and I'm looking for a new base. So I'm thinking of maybe Mongolia. And he says, well, if you do, you should try and make it 10 or 12 years because just coming once or twice, it's hard to do much benefit. But if you come every year for 10, 12 years, then that'll help. And in my mind, I'd already, I usually think in 12 year increments is kind of, 
and probably a thing coming over from the way car licenses and uh, you know the in car insurance goes like up to age 12 you can't drive after that you have different countries you can drive on little roads back roads on the farm that sort of thing and once you turn 24 your once you, your insurance is very big until you're 24 once you're 24 it goes way down and once you're 36, things change again. And once you're 48, your whole body changes. And once you're 60, the government will pay you just to keep breathing. <laughs> and chair, keep, keep, just, to, just to keep breathing and shopping to keep the national economy running. <laughs> keep doctors in, in gainful employment. <laughs> so I had been thinking, you know, 10, 12 years anyway. And, uh, so then I looked around and I'd be, well, right when I was there, was that first year I made friends. So I found that many of the monks I had met over in Darmstadt over the years have, were there and now had, with the fall of communism, had actually become reasonably influential. And so I spoke to them about it. And then I became friends with a woman who was a, kind of the last princess her grandmother had been the last princess in 1924 when the communists had taken over and the use of titles such as princess was banned. So she was her descendant. And so, and we became very good friends and she was in charge of the visa situation, long-term visas. And um, we became friends with, I became friends with her because I started doing a project with the National Museum, Santa Bazaar Museum, that's known as a, in honor of, or the National Museum in honor of Santa Bazaar. Santa Bazaar was sort of the first Lama king of Mongolia, sort of like the Dalai Lama. Santa Bazaar is a mispronunciation of Shnanavashra, the Sanskrit Shnanavashra, which is a translation of his Tibetan name, Yeshi Dorje. So he had been a contemporary of the fifth Dalai Lama and a co-student with the fifth Dalai Lama of the first or fourth, depending on counting systems of Panchen Lama, Panchen Lama, and then later uh, when Mongolia sort of became unified following a series of civil wars, he emerged as kind of the most popular Lama in the country, much like the fifth Dalai Lama had in Tibet in 1642. In the 1680s, he became the first Lama, so uh, Lama King. So it's kind of a, the most Buddhistic, the, the museum in, in, in Mongolia with the most great Buddhist art. And the Rubin Museum in New York had asked if I would speak to the director about documenting some of their stuff or so if it gets stolen, you know, at least there's a record of it. Like a lot of it wasn't even photographed. And so I became friends with the national director and he introduced me to the princess. They were very good friends. And then it turned out she was uh, more or less in charge of long-term, all foreign long-term visas. And she was also in charge of a pr um, protocol at the airport. So then once we became friends, and basically, whenever I came, she would, you know, have people walk on the plane and walk me off like a VIP and take me to the VIP lounge and uh, serve me free, good quality Mongolian vodka. <laughs> uh, 
But anyway, so I said to her, well, I'd like to base myself here, but once a year visas are too much of a headache and these short visas. So I would need a three-year visa. And she said, well, uh, there's no such visa actually legally at the moment, but we can look into what can be done. Uh, they, they said, so we do have a kind of a visa like that called a service visa that used to be given to Soviet bloc countries and can still be given. That was never taken off the books, although it's not used since the fall of the Soviet Union. But we could try and get you in under that, but you're not a Soviet bloc country. I said, well, what you should do is get me in under that, and then that will serve as a precedent, and any other Canadian ever coming to Mongolia can similarly get that service visa. They can just say, well, that uh, Buddhist uh, writer, Glenn Mullen, got it, so he was a Canadian, I'm a Canadian, you should give it to me. <laughs> and so she stuck her neck out and gave it to me, and the only side was it was not really a fully legal visa in the sense that I wasn't a Soviet bloc country. It was legal in that it was given by the international or the foreign secretary of the house, the foreign secretary house. Uh, but uh, that went on for three years. And then after three years, they, she hadn't managed to get it, get convinced the government to make, to include Canadians in that category. <laughs> so she said, we'll have to give you a different three-year visa this time, we'll call it a meditational advisor <laughs> visa. <laughs> so my next three-year visa was as meditational advisor. <laughs> and uh, each of them had its own faults. With the first type, you can only be in the country for 90 days, but then you can go out for a day and come back. So in that I travel and teach so much that in the three years I had it, only one occasion was it inconvenient. And then I just hopped on a train up to Russia, spent a week up in Lake Baikal and uh, Ulan Uday and visiting the Mongol Buddhist sites up there. And uh, my real purpose was I wanted a place where I could rent, you know, rent an apartment at a reasonable price and have a fairly relaxed life and use as a writing retreat place because traveling, teaching five, six months a year, wherever I sort of bunker down, I want to be able to get writing done. So that was one of the main reasons. And it should, and I wanted to be a place where I can keep my Tibetan, spoken Tibetan alive and without someone to talk to, that's not probable. That's not very easy. And so it worked out very, very nicely. And so basically I spent nine years there like that, three or four months a year, five, some years, five months by keeping an apartment that whole time. And when I wasn't in town, my Mongolian friends would be very happy because uh, they could use my apartment. So there was a lot at that time, new apartments being built and old ones being taken down. And a lot of people moving from the countryside into the city, living in gear, yurts on the outside. So my apartment was never empty when I was away. <laughs> so it was kind of a win-win situation for me and for others. And I did quite a few books when I was up there. I did my book with Tom Kelly on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And I, uh, I did the Sacred Sites of the Dalai Lama's book. I wrote that when I was up there. And I think a female Buddha's book I did, Flying Mystics of Tibetan Buddhism. Maybe Buddha in Paradise, I think I also did that. Anyway, I did five, six, five or six books during that nine years and 
that was from about 2003 until 2003 or four until 2011 or 12. Yeah, or maybe 12 or 13. Yeah, so, so that period. Yeah, so it was after a lot of the things in, in the 90s, I mostly spent between the States and Canada and doing international teaching tours. And so at the end of that is when I wanted to move back. So then when I was up there, during communist times, both Buddhism and shamanism were equally kind of uh, oppressed, you could say, by the communists. And uh, Buddhism was more easy to oppress because they're dependent upon some sort of collective institutional situation. It's, it's kind of a enlightenment factory processing units, you could say monasteries, meditation, hermitage, uh, shetras and uh, retrus and these kind of places. So it's easy kind of to destroy all of that, uh, that the, the educational side of Buddhism. And when you destroy the educational side, because Buddhism is normally traditionally Tibetan Buddhism a 12 to a 15 year education to become a qualified Lama. So to just once you destroy those facilities, and of course they also banned tokus and tokus have played a big role in the whole in the whole um, preservation of a living enlightenment tradition. So that perhaps was more easy to attack. Shamanism was stamped out and if you know they would have to have have you turned in, someone have to uh, declare you a shaman, like uh, Europe during the witch hunts, perhaps. And because of a lot of shamanic transmission happens just in a, in a direct training system, grandfather to grandson, or just some shaman who takes two or three students. And it often happens in remote areas. A lot of it, they love doing things on mountains. And the training period is much shorter, two or three years like that. You know, it's um, learning to drum well and do the various kinds of rituals well, and then how to induce uh, trances. Tibetan, Tibetans were called lapaba, channeling. They talk about the 99 Tingir, the 99 cosmological forces we could say extraterrestrial UFO spirits, <laughs> but cosmological spirits, and often appearing in ancestral form. And so the more of those 99 one can channel, the higher degree of shaman one is. And beginning shamans learn to channel one or two or three, and then they get up to 10. And uh, sort of the best shamans get up to 70, 75, 80, something like that. And so then if one needs any kind of service, one, you know, any, any kind of reading, you could say, one goes to them for whatever reason. And it's much like in the, the sort of spiritual energy side of life that we see, say, in Africa, in sort of the, the, the white voodoo side of things. You know, the Christians, of course, speak of voodoo like it's something evil, but because it's 
Christ isn't listed there as one of the people who's involved and then none of the none of the voodoo priests are circumcised so that's kind of like a strike again two strikes against them right from the beginning but it's a little bit like that or it's our pre-christian european tradition of white magic many of the shamans are also healers i mean the, most people go to them for a disease healing life problems they're also a little bit like psychologists and counselors but they don't do it through a degree from learning to talk Jungian or Adler or Freudian uh, speak, but rather through a channeling of kind of spiritual energy. And I had, uh, so I didn't know any of the shaman side of Mongolia before visiting Mongolia, but once I was there, I began meeting them and uh, from North America, of course, our own native North Americans all come from that part of the world. And Western anthropologists say in three waves, 25 BC, 13 BC, and 8,000 BC, 13,000 BC, 25,000, 8,000 BC, and they came across in three waves. So if one has much connection with North American native culture, any of that native culture which hasn't been destroyed or perverted with a sort of forced Christianity, if you will. One will see many, many similar elements. It's very, very ancient tradition of healing and uh, energy work. And yeah, and they're very, most of these people are really fabulous, fabulous people. I mean, you know, the, 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 the you know, communist governments tried to put them off as like, charlatans and uh, people trying to cheat the public and you know if you have a problem in your life you know go ask a government expert and they'll straighten it out for you don't ask a shaman <laughs> that was a communist that could be a communist uh, slogan don't ask a shaman <laughs> and so i became friends with a number of them and uh, the first actually a former shaman to the president uh, bjomba dorge I met him by accident. I was uh, on a, a tour a pilgrimage with some people, some friends. <coughs> and uh, I used to bring once or twice a year a group after my Tibet trips. I would bring small groups of 10, 15, 20 people to Mongolia to visit the old Buddhist places. So we were on one of those tours. And one of my members had cracked a bone walking on a sacred mountain and his foot was in a cast and uh, all of that a really wonderful wonderful doctor from texas and we were staying at it but he once and when he had it he said now glenn i want to tell you you're not allowed to send me back to ulaanbaatar i'm continuing on this tour and that's that so you got to figure a way where you can get me into my wheelchair and on and off the bus and into the bathroom and back. I can wipe my own ass. <laughs> and so he was traveling with us and one of the camps we're staying in, uh, Bjampa Doris just happened to be there with some of his family and some of his students. And he, uh, well, so the princess Shore, the prince, my princess friend, I would often take her along on the tours for a number of reasons. One is she was just very wonderful with any 
little problem that came up. Like for instance, we're in Setzerleg at one time and the police stopped our van and uh, found a headlight out or something like that. And it's very typical under, after communism fell in Mongolia, you know, the, the director of the National Museum, now cost of living has gone up to say four or $500 a month for a family, but his salary is still just $125, $125 a month. Or the police, you know, cost of living is two or $300 say a month for a small family like that. And uh, his salary is maybe $75 a month. And so all of, a lot of these people are all looking for at that time, a little extra, you know, what do you call it? Uh, cash flows. <laughs> And so I would try in the summer when I brought people over, if any television people came to do a project or movie people came to do a movie or writers, journalists to you know, find them some gainful employee over the summer months when they have a lot of time off. So I would always take her along in case of problems. And we come into Cesar Lake and the police stop and say, oh no, we're gonna have to confiscate your van, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and so, if we would have just been by ourselves, it would have been a day or two of negotiating for how much to get our van back. <laughs> but she gets off and speaks in very wonderful Mongolian. I mean, very, you know, uh, in charge of airport protocol for the visits of Prince Charles, George W. Bush and so forth, kind of Mongolian, <laughs> really high Mongolian. Oh yes, she says, oh, I know officer, I know you're right. And yeah, it is our fault, uh, we didn't see it, I'm sure, please. If you wish, uh, we can make a call to the president of the country and uh, ask him to uh, have you give us sort of special leniency because of the, our guests are very honored guests and blah, blah. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> No need, no need to form the president. <laughs> but anyway, so then I'm at, we're there, we're at one of those gear camps, yurt, they call them gear camps in Mongolia, a gear being a Mongolian kind of yurt where the yurts are like tea cozies. A yurt to Mongolians are the teepee shapes. And they're up in the north and the, the outside is always made of leather for, on a yurt. And uh, the gear is the, the steps and the gobi, uh, where they don't have trees, so they don't make like that. And uh, a sort of tea cozy made out of wool and cotton and felt. Anyway, so she comes running in. Oh, Lama Clan, the uh, president's shaman's here. He's in town. Well, you, you should come and meet him. He's such a wonderful guy. I've, we've been friends for years. Whenever he comes and goes from the country, as president shaman and myself, my role is in charge of a protocol at the airport. I'd always be asked to process his papers quickly and blah, 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 blah. So I went over and met him and he was like this absolutely sweet guy. And, uh, you know, probably 70 years old or something like that, quite tall, like maybe 6'2 or 6'3 and very bulky. I mean, looking a little bit like a, not as thick as a sumo wrestler, but he would certainly pass for a, a well-embodied being. <laughs> and really, really lovely, very, very humble. And I said to him, yeah, well, let's see, what have we got going? Yeah, we do have this one fellow who's like broken a bone in his leg, in his ankle. And uh, be nice if you take a look at it and do something about it. He's okay. 
So we bring him over. He puts on his shaman costume with the hat and the feathers and the all of the, the wolf's tail and the wolf's foot. <laughs> very, very striking. Whenever he goes into trance, he puts that on. It's kind of to honor, to honor the sh shamanic tradition. When they're not in trance, they're quite ordinary people. You know, some of them are doctors and some of them are school teachers. And they can be anything they like to be in their non-trance form. But in, when they go into trance, it's like they're a whole different person. It's a little bit uh, like with Tibetan oracles when in the same way, for instance, I was quite good friends in Darmsla with the main female oracle, Dorta Yudunma, a turquoise light oracle. And when she would go into trance, she would be completely off of this planet. She would be like dancing on another world system altogether and just speaking in verse at 100 miles an hour in perfect timed metered verse at 100 miles an hour without a pause. Uh, but when she was not in trance, she would be like this. Uh, let's see. Uh, when she come out of trance, she never even remembered a single thing that had happened when she was in trance. Wow. So uh, the the shamans of Mongolia a little bit like that, although they may have some some of them may have some recollection of what happened between those two sets. But most of them have a kind of dual life, you could say, when they're. Uh, and I don't know if it was always like that, but under you know communism and post-communism, under communism, you had to have some niche, which was your profession. Could be artist, could be singer, could be musician. <laughs> you just had to go to the right, to, to the appropriate school and get a piece of paper saying that that's what you did. And you'd put in your blood, sweat, and tears to get that piece of paper. And now for the rest of your life, you've got a salary to be a singer or a painter or a <laughs> poet, <laughs> school teacher, doctor, whatever it was. The good side of communism was that kind of stability that when it worked well, it was a very effective, socially stable and quite happy, healthy life for people. The downside was government authority made the government, any government decision um, uncontested. Un <laughs> so if you ever went against the government, you lost all privileges of being a citizen and therefore you were kind of an outcast and they could do anything with you they wanted. So that's obviously the downside. But under the new shamanism, under communism from 1924, you could say, really from the 1940s, 50s, 60s, uh, if anyone had any shamanic involvement, they had to be very careful about it. And from 1990, after the fall of communism, well, even 1980s, although communism was still officially there, it had sort of become more of a, you know, just an economic system rather than a social and legal system. So during the 80s, there was pretty big relaxation. But with the fall of communism, it was like everything was on the table. So Bianca Dorsch became one of the great revivers of the tradition, you could say. He started officially accepting disciples or students. And, you know, always had two or 300 of them from, um, throughout the 90s. and. Uh, from the time I met him, I probably met him in, 
I don't know, 2007 or eight or something like six, seven, eight. And then uh, I met other three or four other shamans uh, on various occasions because once, once the shamans learned that there was a foreigner who liked shamanism, <laughs> they would often come to visit me and you know have a glass of vodka, invite me to their their ceremonies and uh, so on. And of course, for YouTube, I'm sure you you I think I sent you the link. Uh, I made a short video video on the Shaman Festival, which is held every April in Mongolia. And probably 50 years, 20, no, 20 or 30 shaman teachers have their own little area. And they all come with anywhere from 10 to a couple of hundred of their students. And for three days do drumming and singing 24 hours a day without let. So it's, they go. Part of the trance, I think, in those big festivals comes from a combination of the intensity of drumming for three days and also the intensity of sleep deprivation while singing and dancing in the cold. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but you can find it on YouTube. I think if you search my name, Glenn Mullen and Mongolian Festival or something like that. I will put that uh, link to that in the description. Sure, sure. But anyway, so then I became more involved with them. And after that, uh, you know, if there were shaman conferences held and from time to time, academics of the world would hold a little conference on shamanism. And I never became an expert on shamanism, but if it was held in Mongolia by Mongolians, they like to call it an international conference. So they want the more international people they can get there, the better it is kind of for how it looks on television and uh, for the record. So I was invited to I don't know, four or five of those, maybe half a dozen of those, and just to read a small paper, prevent, uh, present a small paper. And I'd usually do it on something like the sort of the similarities between Buddhist, the tantric Buddhism and traditional shamanism and some of the symbolisms or the use of color in ceremonies and even some of the overlays because uh, wherever Buddhism went, uh, it basically would absorb and recast what it found there. Uh, and it would become a part of the Buddhist tradition. So I think uh, the strength of Buddhism, for instance, when it went to China, became very Chinesey. I mean, Zen Buddhism is basically Taoism with a foundational philosophy. The, of philosophical foundations and ethical moral code, you could say, and some of the borrowed linguistic of the Pragnaparamita, the, the Diamond Sutra, Heart Sutra, and so forth. And the same in Korea or the same in wherever it's gone. Buddhism has never attempted to displace whatever meritorious culture it encountered, but rather to absorb and recast, if you will, in a kind of a positive light. In other words, if it were to go to New Guinea and they have headhunting, where they still have active headhunting, and you would want to, you know, if, if those headhunters wanted to become Buddhist, they'd have to make a few minor adjustments. 
like stop cutting off human heads and shrinking them and hanging them on your tent. <laughs> but you can do that symbolically and talk about the symbolic side of that. <laughs> I think we see that in some of the um, Indian traditions. You know, human sacrifice was popular in ancient India, especially in the Kali tradition. Anyone building a bridge or a house would like to have a, you know, someone who is sacrificed in the foundations and their Kali therefore would stay and take good care of you. So when Buddhism was taken up by those people, they could still use the beneficial side sides of those kind of traditions, but no more, you know, catching stray humans in the marketplace and uh, sacrificing them and burying them in the foundations of your, of your uh, bridge. <laughs> And uh, so the, I think also in Buddhist Tantra, because of shamanism, as we can tell from, you know, when the Hopi came over 13,000 years ago or whatever it was, they brought over many of the symbols of shamanism and the colors of shamanism. So we can see how it predates Buddha by thousands and thousands of years. So there's two sides of it. We could say what was what was incorporated by Buddha into the Buddhist tantras. And then when Buddhism goes to other countries, like for instance, Jews, uh, Jewish people taking up Buddhism and the Jews who take up Buddhism, they call themselves Jubus. <laughs> uh, even though they became Buddhist, they will continue to have uh, circumcision amongst their male offspring. So like that sort of thing, Buddhism, if they become Buddhism, we may limit how much can be cut off. <laughs> but there would still be some bending of <laughs> to accommodate those idiosyncrasies. <laughs> That's fascinating. Did you yourself ever engage in any channeling of the Mongolian or Tibetan variety? No, no. Uh, it's a kind of a specific training. In the Tibetan world, not just anyone does it. It's kind of a calling, you could say. Uh, for instance, I live next door to the old Nechung Monastery, not where it presently is in Gunki, but down below. When I had a house on Gamru Road, as it was called, it, was, it used to belong to someone called Ta Lama. Ta is a, that's a Mongolian title. And after he died, his house was a rental. And I managed to get that house. And it actually is a Tibetan aristocrat carries that Mongolian title, Talam. And right next to them was a house that had been rented by Nechung Monastery. So I knew the old oracle quite well. And then he died. And then for a while, there was no oracle. But after a couple of years, one of the young monks in Nechung just started falling into trance during uh, the Doji Trakten, the Doji, the, that deity's invocation. Now, for me, I'm more, I'm not so into, um, yeah, because that's a calling. I never, and I never felt the calling to do it. Uh, I much more prefer the route of the Lama teacher than of the ritualist shamanist. Mm -hmm. um, but I have had many 
you know, Buddhist, uh, Buddhist oracles, La Pabba, La Pabba or La Pabba. Or La, if it's male, they say La Pabba, female La Pabba. I've had many of them do seances for me in the same way, say Dalai Lama will have the state oracle do or any other oracle or anyone can, you basically ask them and make a request and commission. And one of them was with uh, Doji Yudunma in Dharamsala, great female, and her lineage was mother-daughter transmission. So it had passed for many centuries in that way, mother-daughter. And uh, I guess the, my strongest memory is on one occasion in Dharamsala, a, uh, an Irishman had gone up the mountain behind Dharamsala to Trion. And at Trion, you can continue up above and come down the other side and you're in a whole different valley. You can go north or you can go turn right, turn left, and there's a whole valley that goes hundreds of miles. So he may have gone over and just gone right or left, never came back, nobody knew where he was. But he was with a traveling companion. And after five days of him not coming back, that traveling companion went down to the police and reported him missing. And then it's like this total panic goes out amongst the police and the army comes out with thousands of soldiers running up and down and looking and helicopters and all the rest. And then uh, the uh, police came to us foreigners who were living in Darmstadt and asked to join the, the search. And I thought, you know, five, firstly, five days is a long time. And secondly, the guy went up in wearing short pants, a t-shirt and flip-flops. So if he doesn't come back, it's a little bit like Darwinism in action. It's, it's kind of like, I'm not sure that this kind of behavior really requires two or 3,000 people spending days and days looking. And if he comes out, if he's either already dead or he's gone, and so my running up around this mountain is not really going to be anything. I've never been a kind of follow the herd kind of guy. <laughs> so I went to the uh, Oracle, so you, you do my turquoise light. And she went into trance. And uh, so I said, uh, is he alive or is he dead? And, you know, she goes into trance and she would chant just at breakneck speed in poetry. And so anyway, the answer is no, he died. He went up, he came down the same day that he went up and uh, he was a little confused and dizzy because it started to rain and then he got wet and then he was uh, wearing though, not really much clothes and it got misty and smoky and he mistook the you come to a lot of little forks in the path and like Robert Frost says, when you come, no, no, so who is that, the baseball player? When you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> well, he took the wrong one. <laughs> Yogi Berra, that's it. That's it. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> so he took it. Anyway, she said he went along and he tripped over something and fell over the side. and. Uh, he broke his ankle in a couple of places, broke a couple of ribs and broke his jaw. And he's now lying on the mountainside. And she jumps into a position to kind of indicate the way he looked, lying in the mountainside like this. And I guess that's how he landed when he landed down. And she said he stayed away, he, he stayed alive during that evening. 
but it, it uh, rained and up there it hailed and he got very cold. And the next morning, many people walked uh, above him on the path just above where he had fallen and he tried to call out to them but because his jaw was broken and he was so weak from the cold, he couldn't make enough sound and he died that afternoon. So this was, I think, on a Monday. And I said, well, in that case, if he's dead, can you give any kind of direction to where he is? And she said, the problem is in the mountains, one tree looks much like another. And so no matter what, how I describe it, nobody's gonna be able to get there. But don't worry, they'll be bringing him to town on Friday between noon and sunset. This was like on a Monday or I think it was Monday, a Monday or Tuesday, but anyway, on Friday. So Friday, myself and two or three other people went up to town and we sat in a little cafe overlooking the, the bus, the central square in McLeod Gang, which doubles as a bus stop. And about 3.30, these two skinny little policemen came walking down with a skeleton and uh, just placed it down at the top of the bus stop well, they waited for an ambulance to come and pick it up and they phoned down and waited for them. And so we all walked over and looked at it and the position that body was in was identical to the position she had made. And he had the broken ankle, and a couple of broken ribs and the broken jawbone, just as she had said. The other thing she said, and she said, anyway, his bones have been picked clean by the young. Uh, by the vulture, by the birds, by the vultures. Now, I think the way his body was actually found was that lots of these mountain shepherds knew exactly where it was. But they, because they had noticed the vultures, right? Because mm -hmm. vultures hang around a body like that for several days, taking a little snack here and a little snack there. But they were afraid to get involved because if they said that well, they knew where it was, maybe the police would, you know, suspect them or look because if, if a foreigner dies in India, then there's a big inquisition into the whole thing to be sure that he wasn't murdered. But because back in the old days of British rule, one of the ways of getting even at the overlords was to murder one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and so often they, you know, the, a case remains open until someone is arrested and convicted. And so I think the shepherds were probably, you know, up there they don't call them shepherds, they call them gutti, a certain kind of guy who lives at the high altitudes. Even in the middle of winter, they run around with just a jacket down to the middle of their thighs. So they don't wear like pants or knee, cap, knee pads or anything. They just wear like a super warm jacket on the upper part of their body down to the middle of their, roughly to their knees. And then they wear a pair of uh, shoes made from uh, water buffalo hide, which is very, very strong. And usually they buy used tires and put that at the bottom of those running up. And they found that those buffalo hide shoes last a lot longer with a little bit of a Japanese tire underneath. <laughs> But anyway, so just like that oracle had said, it was brought down exactly at that amount of time. A friend of mine in England, actually, Michael Parrott, who lives over in uh, the Oxford area, he was living up at the up on the hill at the time, and he 
uh, had actually was there when this body with us with placement was announced and so uh, he had gone out with another person living way way up a place called Darmcote at the time so people did retreats up there and Darmcote and Darmcote is kind of in layers down at like 2,000 feet you've got the Indian government office as the head of Congra district kind of thing and up at and there's Darmsla proper, which is you've got all the marketing bits. And up is McLeod Gange, and that's where you've got like the Tibetan refugee village. And the Dalai Lama's home was not too far from there, given to him by the Indian government. And up above there, another thousand feet is where Ling Rinpoche lived and taught, and many of his disciples did retreat. And up at Darmcote and further up is where people did longer term retreats. And up above there for the 10, 15 miles back into the mountains was where the guys went to do their, you know, three, six, 12 year retreats. So anyway, Michael was up there doing a retreat at that time. So he was, I think, involved in the first viewing of the body once the Gaudis let it know, let it spread the word that they knew where it was. But they wanted, I think they were very slow on that because they really wanted to stay out of it. They're really hoping that uh, the army would just find it there and leave it at that. Because mm. otherwise, chances of one of them being accused of like robbing and murdering the person or interrogated by that or whatever. It was what they were, not that the, the police would have done that, but just their fear that that would be a consequence. Yeah, so, there, and so then when I went to Mongolia with shamans, I started attending some of their seances and they gave them, you know, well, the shaman gave me the, the head shaman of the country gave me a sort of one of the national honors, which is the star of Mongolia. So if you get it from the president, it's sort of politically prestigious. But if you get it from head shaman, it's kind of like spiritually pre prestigious. So that was very gracious of him to do that. And it's sort of the highest honor given in the country is sort of like getting the Congressional Medal of Honor in the States, except uh, without the politics <laughs> involved. That was very, very sweet of him. And I had many other shaman friends and I would sometimes attend their, their events. Uh, when Richard Gere came to Mongolia and he's written forwards to two or three of my books and I've known him for many, many years. So when he came and uh, he asked me to take him around to some of the things in Ulaanbaatar one of his days off. But, uh, and so one of the things he said, oh, when I'm here, I'd really love to experience a shaman uh, channeling. So I asked uh, my two favorites, a presidential shaman and also the others, my other one who's really a really very, very powerful shaman. But, with shamans, unfortunately, they have days of the week which are inauspicious for them to channel. And so both of them, that was like an off day. Oh, no, not possible, not absolutely. No, absolutely. We, no, it's an off day. Sorry, I can bring one of my students who, for whom it's an on day and I'll bring a very good student who's very qualified. And, <laughs> and so they, um, he brought over two of his other students I mean, he came and sat and sort of supervised it. But uh, and 
there's many of the shaman events, some of them have uh, one or once or twice a week when they do kind of open sessions. And anyone can come to those sessions. Now, shamans like to do it in a gear. They're traditionally, they have a yurt if they're down on the plains or they'll have a teepee. They'll have a gear if they're on the, on the, on the flatlands or the steppes of the Gobi. If they're up in the forest, they'll have a, a yurt, a teepee. So traditionally they keep those even in the city and they'll do those sessions in their yurt or in their, their gear. And people will come in and sit down and they'll do it from say six in the morning till 11 or something like that. And everyone comes in and one by one, you just move around the circle and come in front and you ask your question. With Bianca Dorj, because he channels about, uh, I don't know, 80 or 90 different ones. When the question's asked, he immediately just leans back like this and his body goes totally limp. And then he sits up and it's like a completely different being. So sometimes for instance, it'll come in the, in the form of a, a grandmother ancestor. And so then it'll want to drink milk and have milk offered and sometimes it'll come in the form of a grandfather. Then it'll want a pipe to smoke and some vodka. <laughs> so he'll light a pipe and have a little sip of vodka. <laughs> and whatever questions are asked will be. And sometimes it'll recommend very particular little things being done. And very often, of course, this incorporates the burning of various uh, fragrances, if you will, herbs. These are probably medicinal in nature and the person goes in the pot and you put it under and you, you the person breathes it in like this for two or three minutes. It's a kind of a, what he called inside secret. What goes into each of those concoctions? <laughs> but for in case, in my case, for instance, once I took a French friend to one of those and he was suffering from a really strong kind of depression anxiety for a few years, partly because of the kind of business he was in was very strained and also some medical sort of conditions he had. But it was very amazing because when we went in, Bianpador is just sort of slumps and then he wakes up and he's like, then he sits up and he's got this kind of whole different kind of physical presence. And he starts talking about his condition and hits everything right on. And then he takes out one of his pouches of powder in his little pot and drops in a piece, couple of pieces of coal and puts it under him and says, yeah, I'll breathe some of this for a couple of minutes. And while he's inhaling it and breathing it, Yambadorj is chanting and beating his drum and so on and so forth. Uh, their drums look very much like our North American native drums. Uh, they're kind of big and round like this, only this thick skin on just one side and the back side has a handle inside. And so they often sing and dance holding like that. Anyway, my friend came out of it and, you know, I would say for at least a year after that, he was um, much more cheerful. <laughs> I mean, of course, once he got back to work and, you know, in these mega deal, you know, acquisitions, situations and 
the whole stress of a billion dollars here, a billion dollars there, and him getting the credit or the blame for whatever went right and wrong, <laughs> respectively, sort of brought him down a little bit. But his health definitely improved. His state of mind, his whole feeling became much, much better for well over a year. Did Bianca George work with your Texan friend's foot? Oh, yes, yes. So that was very wonderful. <clears throat> so uh, Bianca George, uh, yeah, he went and spoke about the foot and he goes, uh, yeah, so anyway, uh, um, right. Yeah, so he basically did a about a 10-minute ritual on it and a kind of a, you could call it kind of therapeutic touch where from a distance, they just kind of out and throw energy to it like this. Mm. But of course, you know, the whole thing's in a cast and all the rest of it. So uh, when we were out, when we were in, because uh, after we came down the hill, the first thing I said, when he said he wanted to stay with me, I said, well, the first thing we're doing is going to town and getting a cast put on it because if it is a cracked bone, we don't want it going anywhere or moving anywhere. And uh, we went to town and uh, they had a very nice doctor and they had an x-ray machine. So they x-rayed it and caught the little, the bone was cracked, but not displaced. We call it a hairline fracture, but it's actually a total break, but it hasn't moved anywhere. So got it all wrapped up and put in a nice cast and traveled for about a week or 10 days, maybe something like that. And then when we got back to Ulaanbaatar, we went into, they have an SOS, which is like an international system there. We went into their place and we had them take it off, you know, cut it off, re-x-ray it and put on a fresh one for traveling back to the States. And you know, there they put in some other kind of strengthener so that walking through airports and stuff like that it wouldn't no no damage would come the only problem you had was back in the states uh, later so everything was going well but back in the states the doctors insisted on uh, opening and putting a pin in it and his body didn't react well to that pin he would have been perfect if he would have stuck with what was done in mongolia and just left it there but and the states are always very nervous if the bone moves for any reason. And so they put a pin in it and I never would have put a pin in mine, that's for sure. I'd take it upon myself to not let that bone move. <laughs> you keep it in a cast and you stay off the damn thing and keep it up a little bit and stuff like that. But he had a pin put in it, that pin became a problem and required a second to be uh, taken out and some have the, became infected with somehow when they put it in, they didn't get it sterile. So our operation in Mongolia for $75 and a $25 tip to the doctor, because he's working at $100 a month, was absolutely perfect. And uh, the one in UB for maybe $200 at a, at a kind of a mo more modern hospital, but no better quality was also excellently done. Had he just stuck with that, he never would have had a problem. And, but, you know, trouble is in America in particular. If they don't do something and anything goes wrong, you can sue them for millions. So the insurance companies insist that these, or the medical profession insist that this get done. 
these things are done to avoid the possibility of a humongous medical lawsuit. And it's unfortunate because that reaches over to every everything in America, the over-testing and over-treatment over of everything really is, uh, I think, the biggest health damager in America. But anyway, that's a different issue. Yeah, so his, Jambadorj's uh, thing was very wonderful because, you know, he even went riding on a camel with his leg like <laughs> <on> a camel. <laughs> now, Glenn, I know I'm not supposed to, but you know, I uh, really, I'm not going to be back. I'm, I'm a little bit of an old guy. I'm not going to be back in this part of the world. And if I don't do it today, I don't, it doesn't get done for the rest of my life. And that's just a plain, simple fact. And so uh, I know doctors would say, don't do it. And I know I'm a doctor and it was my patient. I'd say, don't do it. But I'm a doctor and I'm saying, I want to get on that camel. <laughs> and so he did and did very wonderfully. And there was no negative side effect. Uh, yeah, I think that more, the more simple approach to health and medical issues as a general rule of thumb, I think is much better than the, the over-treatment of all things. From what I've read about the Tibetan medical system in the Gushi, one of the categories of causes of illness there are several different categories of causes of illness. And one of them is negative spirits, negative influence by negative spirits and so on. It seems like that would, would be involved in the Mongolian uh, shamanistic approach to dealing with illness. Do the Mongolian shamans function also as healers with bone setting, uh, preparing herbal concoctions and so on? And is, is there a role in their way of uh, looking at things for the influence of say negative spirits or uh, disturbed local spirits that can cause problems if you don't, you know, move, move the wrong rock or something like this. Mm -hmm. Well, again, with Mongolian shamanism, you know, because Buddhism became the national religion of Mongolia under Kublai Khan in maybe, I don't know, 1230 or 1240, something like that. So many, many hundreds of years. And in fact, Mongolia had much, had Buddhism before Tibet did, because in the early days, with King Ashok, it came up over the, through Pakistan and Kashmir and came over to the Silk Road and traveled east along north of Tibet. Along, so Mongolians claim that Buddhism came to their country in the time of King Ashok. And in fact, you know, the famous translator translating many of the Prajnaparamita texts into Chinese, who the, the, the Chinese one of the Chinese kings actually sent an army up to kidnap him, <laughs> bring him down, because in those days, academics were considered national treasures, right? <laughs> uh, what was his name? Uh, was it, was it Kamajiva or Dharmajiva, something like that? I don't remember his name offhand, but he translated, but his father was, a, mother was Mongolian, his father was Kashmir, and he's living up in a one of the Mongolian republics to the northwest, and they sent up. So from those early days, Mongolians had a lot of uh, Buddhism in it. So it's hard to say who borrows from whom and what from what. But as you say, in the Tibetan world, Tibetan Medical Center says that all of our illnesses, accidents, and unhappinesses 
are based in one of four roots, a tree with four roots. And some of them come from anger and anger sort of puts out a, a poison that cre creates a disbalance in the humors, lung tiba pegan. And that can result in is a disease and it also disturbs our energy so we can get hit by a truck. <laughs> You're walking along the street thinking, ah, oh, that damn Steve James, I'd like to punch him in the nose and you step off the car, bam, splat. <laughs> or attachment, desire, clinging. And, um, I think that's much more like craving is the meaning of feeling. I need, I need, I need. It takes your mind off what you're doing and sort of lets a poison flow into the blood, which creates a whole disbalance, outer and inner and secret level. Then the third ignorance really means a kind of a mental, a mental fluffiness, perhaps. <laughs> either your, uh, either the, Self-grasping ignorance, as it's often called in Buddhism, Ngarzin uh, Maripa, uh, un incorrect understanding of the nature of the self. In other words, this, the relationship between self and world, the relationship between subject-object and the perceptual process. And that creates a, a, a wrong tuning, like a guitar with the strings out of tune. And that releases negative energy into the whole process and it can create diseases or accidents or any kind of social or romantic disasters and economic disasters and so forth, mishandling of life energies. And then the fourth of them is to do with uh, spiritual energies. And so we can say a kind of a negative relationship with the spirit world, the invisible world. So sometimes people translate that as demons or demonic but I don't like those kind of terms because in Christianity, they sort of made this dualistic system of, you know, angels and demons, angels and devils. Whereas in Buddhism, all living beings are gods and ghosts are equally living beings and they're equally objects of compassion and love and respect as all other living beings. So going out of harmony or out of, out of whack with them is uh, not their fault. <laughs> it's partly to do with us not embracing those levels of the unseen world with compassion, with love, with openness, with spaciousness. And for instance, you know, when the further east in Asia you go, the more they're concerned with ghosts because they have ancestral worship and they know most of their ancestors were assholes. <laughs> so probably after death, ended up getting stuck here or there in the Bardell. <laughs> so there's a lot of fear of ghosts because they're kind of disturbed beings who, you know, like, you know, sort of angry, deadly pirates who got stuck as ghosts, you know, their, their, their piracy ways and their anger is still there. In the Buddhist world, we try to think of them as, well, that's just Uncle James and, you know, yeah, he was a bit of a ruffian and, yeah, a bit of a thief and yeah, probably a rapist and a murderer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but deep inside, there was the Buddha nature thing. <laughs> He's just slowly coming towards enlightenment. Uh, three steps forward, two back. <laughs> 
sometimes three steps forward in that particular life, five steps back. <laughs> so to try to embrace all those things with some sort of love and compassion. So in Lojong, for instance, there's one of the precepts in the seven point Lojong in Tibetan Buddhism that don't use the very harmful mantras on gods and ghosts when they when they disturb you <laughs> and try to be try to be compassionate as you would towards some mother from some previous life who just turned out to be a wacko a serial murderer or whatever but she's still your mother <laughs> against whom should you use those more harmful mantras then in what circumstances would they so, so those in which, well, firstly, in Buddhism, we say only if you've done your three-year retreat and you've gained great signs of success. And so you're not doing it against anger for the person or fear of the person, but rather as a kind of a last resort to lift them up and above what they're going through and to... So we don't use the word killing in that sense. They use, as you are, as you know, the word trowa, liber liberating. So say, for instance, you had a brother who you knew was a serial killer, and he was taken over a school and had a hundred hostages and was murdering them one by one. And you were the only sniper in the area, and you had the chance to take him out. Now you love your brother. You know you don't love the fact that he's a serial murderer that he's murdering these kids one by one until he gets his airplane full of loot and can fly to Venezuela where he'll be there full of loot. But you may, as a sniper, take him out. You're not doing it out of anger for him or nor out of fear for him, nor even to protect those other kids, although that's a factor. You're doing it because it's no good for him to murder those hundred other kids. So in those cases, one can use the wrathful methods. But tantric texts say, unless you've done that, they don't say three-year retreat, unless you've done the Nyenchen, the big retreat, the great retreat, best not to do, but consider yourself unqualified to do. And the other is only on the basis of great compassion, not only great compassion for the victims of the person, but the great compassion for that being, that what they're doing isn't benefiting them, is very harmful to them. And of course, you know, all kinds of ethical questions come up around that, like, well, is it really murder? And who decides if it's right or wrong and all this sort of stuff. In Buddhism, we always leave it up to the person. <laughs> you can't phone up the Dalai Lama and say, hey, my brother's doing this. Uh, can I take a, a, I got a clear shot of him. Is that okay? <laughs> and he's not gonna say, okay, go ahead. We don't, everyone, it, you lay your money and you make your bets and whatever comes out, that's that's it. So we're, we're supposed to be self-monitoring and self-deciding in those effects. So I think in the shaman tradition, of course, they do kind of, it's like many of those spiritual traditions of the world, we can use our position for good, we can use our strengths, our powers, our talents for good or we can use them for evil. And same in the medical profession, doctors can use their healing powers for good or they can use them for evil. You British people should be very proud because you hold the Guinness Book of Records for the greatest serial killer in recorded human history. 
Dr. Ship, Shipham, is it? You had this doctor who was, they think he murdered as many as 350 people. They're not sure how many, the modest efforts say minimum 150. But, uh, but he would go to the houses of these little old folks and sit them up and say, yes, ma'am, you need your injection of blah, blah, blah. And then he would inject them with morphine or some, something that would, then he'd leave and then their daughter or niece would visit in the afternoon and phone up and say, Dr. Shipman, my, my aunt is, it seems to be dead. Could you come over? And he'd come over and say, oh yes. Uh, oh, unfortunately, yes, she died of natural causes. So wonderful, she died sitting up in her living room. <laughs> so, you know, a doctor can use his talents and powers for politicians can do it, kings can do it, barons have done it and used it. We've had very good barons who have taken very good care of their communities and we've had bad ones who've abused it. Celebrities, of course, in the same way and uh, athletes who have use their athletic power to, you know, be wife beaters or husband beaters or whatever. And uh, the same in the spiritual world. We've had Christian priests who have been excellent human beings. You know, Thomas Merton is often held up as an example, a brilliant man, a beautiful writer, and fabulously ethical man. And we've had, you know, pedophilic child abusers who, you know, aren't, don't get a don't really get a passing grade on the moral score. <laughs> so similarly, in the shaman world, some shamans will learn enough about the shamanistic energies to just use it for whatever um, they're asked to do, sort of like gun for hire, rather being a good cop, you could be, you know, a harmful cop. And I think it's the same voodoo in Africa, you had, healers and medicine men who were just fully dedicated to the good. But you had some who achieved some sort of low levels of powers without the spiritual insight, perhaps, who sometimes would use these things in a negative way. So I think that's always an issue, whatever we learn, right? It's like a car. You buy a car and start driving, your chances of being involved in a car accident automatically go up. <laughs> but uh, I mean, all the shamans I met in Mongolia were all very, very well intended. I had the good luck that uh, a French, a French organization uh, offered me a grant to oversee the creation of a book on shamanism. Uh, by a Mongolian shaman rather than an academic book. There's quite a few books out there by people doing PhDs in anthropology or various East Asia studies or spiritual studies. So I look at it in a kind of academic way. But, and so I approached uh, uh, Byamba Dorj, um, uh, the, the great shaman. And he's a prolific writer, he loves writing. And he's published, I don't know, six or eight books. And a lot of them are just, you know, the songs of invocation. They use them as teaching things for his, for his students. And then uh, some of them are personal memoirs about his uncles and aunts and his legacy of uh, relatives and their history. And it's kind of a, you know, mishmash, a kind of like 
most of his books, a combination of something very personal and then something very profoundly shamanic, you could say. So I hired a Mongolian friend of mine, um, Diggy Sodbatter, to read through those half dozen books, main books, and choose what she thought, because she speaks English and she speaks Russian and went to university in Korea, speaks Korean, and traveled around the West quite a bit. She's been you know, very involved with Western people for a long time. So I asked her to go through those and choose maybe a couple of hundred pages of stuff that would work well for a Western introduction to the life and uh, values of a shaman. <laughs> and so she did. And uh, I had a couple of editor friends, one in California and another British woman who lives in Nepal for like 30 or 40 or 50 years or something, uh, help her as uh, sort of making editorial choices. And then in the end, I went through and sort of re-edited it from my side and I helped find a publisher for it. So it's called uh, Reflections of a Mongolian Shaman. You can find it on Amazon. We chose to publish it in Nepal because um, of Vajra books in Nepal, even though it sounds like a small country in Nepal, they do have good world distribution. These days, even some books published in India, like for instance, when I did my Tibetan Book of the Dead and illustrated edition, although it was published in India and the contract is with the Indian publisher, assembly came out in Russian, German, French, Portuguese, and English, maybe one or two other languages. So some of these publishers, even though in the West, it's not like Simon and Schuster or Oxford University Press, they actually, get a really good job done because they're sort of independent in their creativity on their, how they, how they manage to publish and, and distribute their works. So we chose them, they've, they've done a wonderful job. But so that sort of gives a reading into how, a, because some of these are very personal, like the death of his mom and you sort of see the closeness of Buddhism and shamanism in ordinary households. Like for instance, one of the stories is I was sitting at home and though even though he's a shaman, not, not really a Buddhist, although his name Byampa Dorje is a Buddhist name. <laughs> uh, Byampa means Maitreya and uh, Dorje is Vajra. So uh, Maitri Vajra, you could say would be the the Sanskrit equivalent, if I'm reading it correctly. Otherwise, Byampa could be Saturday, but Saturn, Saturn Vajra. <laughs> but uh, it's hard to know with all with all modern Sanskrit, um, modern Mongolia, because they took the traditional Mongolian and cast that in the Russian Cyrillic, which the Russians forced them to do in 1941 after Russia kind of took them over. Not as a kept them independent, but as a satellite, much like say Bulgaria or something like that. And so a lot of those names aren't so clear what they would be back in the original Tibetan, but I think it means Maitri Vajra, but it might mean Saturn Vajra. <laughs> so he's got a Buddhist name. He's talking about it now. He's a, you know, a fully fledged shaman, one of the 10 great shamans of, in the Mongolian world today. He's saying, yeah, it was very wonderful when my mom passed away. We're all sitting at home and 
uh, communism had just fallen a few days before. And for the first time in our history, the Buddhist monks of, of the only temple, we're only allowed to have one temple in all of Mongolia. It's kind of a state showcase for visitors that we had religious freedom. So we're only allowed one. But uh, they were never allowed to do anything on TV or anything like that or have any kind of, they're really there as a kind of a state thing for visitors. For the first time they were being cast, uh, televised, and uh, they had had the Maitreya statue. The first thing they did was, they used to have a very large standing bronze of Maitreya, the largest in the world. And Stalin had had it shipped to to uh, Russia and melted down to make into bullets for the World War effort for his army. And so the first thing they did was rebuild that in there and they're reconsecrating it and my mama, we're all sitting there and we're all so happy to see that finally we're getting some religious freedom back. And this is kind of a big signal to the whole country that it's true communism now is officially gone. <laughs> And my mom was sitting there. She was so happy and holding her mantra mala. And then uh, just sitting in her chair and we're all watching TV. And sometime later, we all look over and say, mom, isn't that great? And we noticed that she stopped doing her mantra. She just passed away while watching the consecration of the Maitreya statue. So he's sort of saying this, that even though I'm a shaman, our household was very much a blend of shamanism and Buddhism. And uh, for his mom, that was very much the case. Yeah. So yeah, the, doing that book was a lot of fun being involved. And it was like a three year project or something like that. And uh, I think, yeah, that's had a reasonably good distribution around the world. And, you know, a nice thing now is uh, Amazon is very international. so. Anyone anywhere in the world can can get a copy. Mm. Reflections of a Mongolian shaman. Right. Yeah. Mm. Amazing. Uh, I could certainly quiz you about this for several more hours, but uh, let, let me ask you this uh, by way of wrapping it up. In the American, some of the American shamanic traditions, I have heard it said that there are different sorts of uh, medicine men or shaman shamanistic figures, and sometimes I've seen it depicted as a horizontal and vertical axis. Axis. There's a sort of spiritual insight, spiritual wisdom type. And then there's the axis of, of power, spiritual or shamanistic power. And that there are some who are on the more power side. And there are some that are more on the um, spiritual insight side. And there are others who are plotted somewhere, uh, a mix of both, perhaps. Also, I think in chi Chinese shamanistic ideas, sometimes it's said from the Buddhist side, get enlightened first, then develop the special shamanistic sort of supernatural powers in order to be of service and so on. I've heard that model mm -hmm. as well. Do any of those models apply at all in the Mongolian shamanistic context? It's hard to say what it was in the past, say what it was pre-Buddhist, but uh, because Hublai Khan made Buddhism the national religion of all Mongols, <laughs> especially of aristocrats. I mean, nothing else was banned, but um, your foundations had to be the Golden Light Sutra, <laughs> basically. And, uh, you know, love, compassion, bodhicitta, the six paramitas, the six perfections. So that was uh, there. So it's hard to say what Mongolian shamanism was before those kind of influences, just like, say, with 
we look at the Pueblo Indians in New Mexico today, what they were like before missionaries forced them all to put their kids in missionary schools and stuff like that, or the shamanism of you know Mexico or South America, where everyone grew up under a, a Christian world in which they, what they were had to be sort of closed in the language of that. But Beyond uh, Pandora's in Reflections of a Mongolian Shaman, I included uh, a chapter. So I was sort of the one who chose in the end what would be going on. One of them is what makes a good shaman. <laughs> and there's a well, first thing he says is love and compassion. His uh, main intention should be to do good. So I think all shamans start like that. And, uh, but in order to do good, we should be become ritualistically powerful. <laughs> in other words, you know, you can do good as a doctor or a nurse or road builder because people need good roads or a carpenter because people need nice houses, plumber because it's nice when your toilet flushes and doesn't go all over your floor. <laughs> the, being, the doing good thing is kind of a universal for every profession. And he says it's more important for shamans in some ways because you're working on a different level. So you can create a different kind of dimension and it can be a little more pronounced. Uh, but they do speak about shamans who basically, after getting a little bit of power with uh, shamanic channeling and ritual sides, do sort of become, you know, guns for hire more than more than looking at the good. I discussed this with one of my other favorite shamans. He said, well, it's difficult to be judgmental about these things because what's good for one person is not necessarily good for another. <laughs> and sometimes what is good has to be a little bit bad for someone. For instance, if we take, you know, something like global warming and the use of fossil fuels in that 90% of the world's energy today is run by fossil fuels. That's good for some 90% of the people, bad for global warming perhaps. <laughs> and uh, to make a change, or it's like, I don't know, when people were, a factory was making buggy whips for when your taxis were horses and buggies and the one making buggy whips was very good. And then the people who decided to buy up those companies and end the buggy whip industry and convert it into making seats for cars. <laughs> it was bad for those peoples whose lives were invested in making buggy whips, but it was good for what would be more practical in the future. So sometimes, that, that shaman was saying, sometimes there is a conflict of good in terms of what's good for one may not be good for the other. Of course, it's always wonderful if it's good for both, but it's not. For instance, in Mongolia, uh, one of the politicians came to me and read about me in the newspaper and said, oh yeah, the Lama Glenn's supposed to be really powerful at Buddhist tantric ritual. If I go and ask him to do a ritual to help me win the election, then blah, 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 it'll probably help. 
I had no idea what part he belonged to, if he was a good guy or a bad guy. And he came and I said, well, you know, I'm sorry, I don't do that sort of thing. You can, you know, there might be someone else around who would do it. Later, he came back and he scolded me, he scolded me. I only lost by 40 votes. Your vote, your endorsement would have gotten me those 40 votes. <laughs> I think he was more in, in, interested in the newspaper endorsement <laughs> than in the ritual. But anyway, but the, if one were a shaman and one could do a ritual to influence, then the one who wins, obviously, it's good for him. And the one who loses, uh, not so good for him from the perspective of winning that particular election. Who's to say over a period of the next 500 years, which one would have been best, right? So I think that was the shaman's point is that we tend to judge good and evil or good and bad on very particular criterions. But there are certainly some shamans who become more interested in the money side of, of it, same as there are doctors who become more involved in the money side or auto mechanics. Or in your case, I think, uh, what is it? Uh, boat heating units. <laughs> I might become more interested in the money side than in other aspects of it. And then in pure service, you could say. I think in any profession, it's difficult not to mix in personal greed, uh, personal pride, egoism, and uh, those kind of negative personality traits, if you will. Uh, it doesn't matter what, what it is. So that would certainly be the case also in shamanism. Um, you know, some people often use it for love potions. You know, I want to be able to date, blah, 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 blah. And if I go to a shaman, that'll give me the edge. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've had friends in Mongolia who boasted of doing that sort of thing. No, no. I don't know if that's good or bad. I mean, a little bit of love powder is perhaps a, a love smoke in the atmosphere. It's perhaps not such a bad thing, but, you know, it's kind of a questionable use of such, such, such talents unless it's motivated on more than just sort of personal conquest, personal pleasure, personal success. So I'm sure every shaman sort of has that kind of issue with any person who's out, who he or she agrees to accept as a patron or client or whatever you want to, to call them. And there are always those two sides to everything in every profession, the spiritual side, and you could say the power or ethical side. And uh, I think in Buddhism, from the beginning, you know, there's great emphasis on bodhicitta, love, compassion. So then regardless of what other good things come out, you'll always use it in a loving, kind way. Now, loving and kind are only limited to your understanding of your choices, right? <laughs> Often there's, like on the Titanic, you've got so many lifeboats and so many people and uh, how many can you, who should you put on? It's a personal choice. and. The ones who got on were obviously very happy that the choice was made the way it was. <laughs> the ones who did not get on were not so happy with those criteria. <laughs> and uh, I think, you know, every, I would have to say from my side, I've never met a shaman who I thought had questionable motivation or self was especially selfish or self-serving. 
or in any way uh, looked upon the darker side of whatever is one's skill and one's talent, using that in a using that in a in a in a negative way or self-serving way. I would say they all the ones I met, and perhaps it's because after communism, you know, Mongolia became in kind of a kind of an idealistic state. You know, if you oppress something for 65 or 75 years, and then you lift the lead off, everyone tends to be very positive. So, um, but yeah, I think, you know, those two sides are there in every, every person, even with a husband, wife, kids, you know, we have to be a little careful that what we're doing is also good for them as well as good for us. And, and that, well, our, as a parent, we have a lot of power <laughs> we also have some kind of spiritual sense or sensitivity. <laughs> that same sort of situation is there. And well, Mullen, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Steve. Always a joy, always a pleasure and an honor. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.